Hello, and welcome back to the third episode of Tom Talks. I'm Tom, and I'll be your host. Apologies for the lack of a bonus episode last month, I thought it would create a bit too much congestion with two episodes being released in the same week. Hopefully this episode should make up for it though. So, March. Funny to think we're here already. The year does go by quickly, at least it has for me. Hopefully it has for you as well, I think. I'd assume that's a good thing. Anyway, for me this has been a very productive month and I've enjoyed it profusely. And where I live the weather's been very up and down, we've had lovely warm days of about, you know, 12 degrees which is warm by my standards and very cold days of about 2 degrees which is cold by my standards. Uh, regardless, I'm generally less fond of this intermediary period between winter and spring. It's very lovely to see all of the plants slowly start to bloom, but we're not quite there yet where I live, so it's just kind of muddy and wet and not particularly pleasant, so you just try and enjoy the warm days that you get. But it's helpful to kind of stop and realise that if you're sitting around waiting for the perfect day or you're waiting for all the grass to grow and the leaves to bloom, you're just wasting your time. So I've enjoyed going out on walks, just looking at the lovely blue skies, it's very cloudless at the moment, and taking it all in, because you may as well accept imperfection, and if you accept it, you may as well enjoy it. Nice little bit of philosophy to start off the episode. Speaking of which, I found adopting and really integrating the mindset of minimalism to be very helpful. I've addressed this in a previous episode, but in short, it's just taking the very basics of what you need. And I don't mean asceticism, as a fun word for you, of depriving yourself of things, so much as really sitting down and evaluating all of the things that you have in your life, whether they're material or metaphorical, and evaluating which of those are necessary and which of those are superficial, and just stripping things down to the bare necessities, to quote a brilliant children's film from the late 1960s, and then just enjoying the things that you have left. So when I sit and I meditate, I think of all of the books I have on my bookshelf that I don't read often, and all of the things I have scattered around my life, and all the people I know, and things like that. And it's helpful when you realise how much of those things are necessary, if that makes sense. So if you try and strip away things, you might be surprised by how much you still have left that is necessary. And you should see that as a positive thing, because if you've got tons of things in your life that are necessary, that means you've got a lot, per se. Anyway, I hope that makes sense. It was a very helpful realisation for me, at least. And while I don't have a particularly cluttered life, it's useful to draw the line between minimalism and clutteredness because everyone's minimal will look very different. There are some people whose entire house could simply be a room with a bed and maybe somewhere to eat food. And for many people, they need a lot more things. And that's fine, but you should just reflect on what you have. If It's fine to have things that you 
don't need or just want and that's not an issue but it's helpful to accept that as good as many things are a surprisingly large amount of them are superficial now while i may have adopted minimalism as a nice metaphorical mindset my workload recently certainly hasn't been minimalistic which has been very fun for me. I personally am a huge fan of working to the extent where occasionally it becomes detrimental for me. But recently, I've found a great way of balancing out my work and non-work lives, and now I'm really feeling very energized and motivated, and that's a great feeling to have. So when I'm not doing schoolwork or anything like that, I'll be studying languages, I'll be practicing my instruments and whatnot, and I found that in the sense of adopting kind of a minimalistic mindset and stripping things back, it's been helpful to reflect on the surprisingly large amount of things that I do and that we all seem to do that actually don't contribute anything in the long term. So when I sit and I meditate, as you know, cliche as that may sound by now, I think about what I see in my future and what I want to be and how each of the things I do in my day contributes to that. So personally, as someone who is in the last couple of years of the UK school system, I intend to go to university and I intend to study linguistics because that's the weird thing I've attached my interest to. And stuff like writing or practicing drawing or, I don't know, doing a sport and intending to become the best athlete in the world are objectively good, good things to be doing, but don't contribute anything for me. So it's helpful to stop and realize how much effort I'm putting into things that either they're going to disappoint me in the short term or in the long term are just going to be things that will have to slowly slip out of my life and I'll feel like that energy has been wasted. Of course, on the other hand, stuff like reading a book or just a general fiction book, watching TV, going out for walks, or even some of the stuff I mentioned earlier, doing sports, stuff like that, are good for relaxation. And obviously that's something that you need. You can't just only focus on the things that you need for your life. Because some stuff is very useful for short-term achievement, like being able to get a good night's sleep and not being too tired or overworked. And you won't be able to achieve long-term things if you're not keeping yourself steady and keeping yourself organized and happy in the short term. And those are pitfalls that I've fallen on both ends on in my life. I mentioned a couple of episodes ago how during the first stage of the COVID-19 pandemic here, I spent hours and hours a day studying languages and reading books, and that was all objectively helpful. But I really neglected myself, and I came out of that period very, very tired, and of course I'd learned tons, but it really wasn't a good idea for me in the long term, and it took me weeks or months to recover from it. And on the flip side, I've spent weeks where I've done practically nothing, and by many people's standards I'm sure that's fine, but as someone who is so hyper-focused on working and productivity all the time, that was something that I couldn't bear. 
at least while I'm aware that some of my personal habits and personal motivations aren't particularly healthy objectively, it's helpful to acknowledge that, even if some things like, I don't know, workaholism, you could call it, aren't unhelpful for some things, because obviously that's what drives me forward and that's what I feel gives me so much motivation. Solving that isn't really something you can do. That's just how I am. So it's better to accept your flaws and try and utilize them, I guess. It's another life lesson. I'm just spewing these out today. It's going great. I hope that if you're listening, this is at least some degree of helpful for you. If not, maybe it's useful to reflect on someone else's goals and someone else's mindsets and realize that's completely useless for me. Because arguably, knowing what you want to avoid is just as useful as knowing what you want. Anyway, uh, my language, at least workload, recently has consisted of Norwegian, as usual, Japanese, French, Czech, Arabic, and Portuguese. I'm pretty sure that's all. Uh, anyway, those have been a useful set of languages to cover, and I'm intending to stick with those for a while, despite the fact that I've kind of dipped my toe in and out of more languages than I could count at this point. And for those of you unfamiliar with the concept of language families, uh, languages around the world are related to varying degrees of closeness. And I found that this coverage of languages across the world is certainly not perfect, but gives a a reasonably helpful and diverse coverage of different language groups. Obviously, it takes me a lot of restraint to not go and study every language I come across, and that's been a mindset I've adopted in the past, and it's gone terribly. Um, but as a, as a basic ground knowledge, most European languages uh, stem from the Indo-European language family, which originated, debatably, around 4,000 years ago in what is now Kazakhstan and southern Russia around the Caucasus Mountains, which is where Caucasians come from. And these people who spoke Proto-Indo-European migrated south and west and eventually east into modern Europe, the Middle East, Iran, and northern India. So this macro family of languages stems all the way as far east as India. So you have languages like Hindi and Bengali, and as far west as English and Icelandic and French. So while plenty of these languages don't seem like they're very closely related, that's because obviously it's taken thousands of years and there's been many, many sub-branches and there continues to be branches. Obviously, anyone that's heard English can very easily see that there are very, very clear differences in English speaking depending on where the person is from, and that's likely that English will split off into many different languages in the future the way Latin did, for example. So this means English as a Germanic language 
kind of genetically, I guess, originates from Proto-Germanic, which was spoken around Denmark and northern Germany a few thousand years ago, and has since branched off into modern German, the Scandinavian languages, Dutch, Flemish, and Icelandic. Obviously, that's not a comprehensive list, um, but that means that genetically, obviously there's no genes, but you know what I mean, English is more closely related to those languages than it is to French. Though English is related to French because on a wider scale they are both Indo-European languages. Now, the other main branches of the Indo-European language family are the Romance language family, which came mostly from Latin, or Vulgar Latin, which is the spoken variety which are French, Spanish, Portuguese, Romanian, Italian, and a few other smaller languages in those areas. There is the Slavic language family, which is less closely related than the Germanic and Romance language families due to the slightly less contact between those tribes, and that's Russian, Polish, Czech, Slovak, Bulgarian, and most of those languages around Eastern Europe. Then there are the Indo-Aryan language families. Ignore the word Aryan, that's not really related to the meaning the word took on in the last kind of 150 years. Uh, it just means kind of people from Iran. So you have Persian and Tajik, Dari, as well as most of the languages of northern India. Then there are a couple of smaller language families, such as the Celtic language family, which is now very small, though was much larger. So that's Welsh, Scottish, Gaelic, Irish, Manx, and Breton in France, as well as a couple of others, and plenty of extinct languages. And then there are a few languages that branched off independently very early on. So Greek and Albanian are two languages that are practically just their own language family, in addition to being their own language, though obviously they are European, Indo-European that is, so they are distantly related to all of those languages I just mentioned, though they are related, of course. There are a few languages in Europe that are not Proto-Indo-European. Some of those are because they are before the Proto-Indo-Europeans came over from Kazakhstan, and then there are some that came afterwards. So Basque is one of the very few European languages that retains its existence from all the way before Proto-Indo-European settlement, and that's spoken in the Basque country, which is an area between southern France and northern Spain. And then there's Georgian and a lot of the other languages spoken around the Caucasus region, though arguably that's in Asia rather than Europe. And then finally there are the Finno-Ugric languages, which as I mentioned last episode came over from the Ural Mountains of Russia, which are Hungarian, Finnish, Estonian and the Sami languages of northern Norway. So I hope that was a helpful little historical linguistics background on Indo-European languages. So, as I was saying before, the languages I'm learning I find are helpful because they cover much more than one language macro family. A lot of people that are learning more than one language might learn languages that are near to them geographically or linguistically. So, as an English speaker, I might be tempted to learn French and German and Norwegian and obviously those are three very different languages, however, they are much, much closer together, and they feature very similar fundamental pieces of structure and grammar, such as 
nouns coming in roughly the same place in the sentence than, say, a language like Chinese or Mongolian, which is completely unrelated and would be completely alien to an English speaker. Obviously, of course, I am guilty of focusing on the Proto-Indo-European suprafamily because I'm learning Norwegian, French, Portuguese and Czech, which are all Indo-European. In fact, French and Portuguese are both Romance language families, so I don't know how I let myself get away with that, but I am. But then you have Arabic and Japanese. Arabic is part of the Semitic language family, which has nothing to do with Jewish people except for the fact that Hebrew is part of that language family. And then there is Japanese, which is considered a language isolate, so it has no existing relatives. Though, of course, purely from a means of proximity, it has a few fundamental similarities to other close-by East Asian relatives such as Chinese and Korean. Now, there are other major language families in the world that I'm not learning actively, though I'll explain a bit about them now, because why not? So, some, there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of language families in the world, and weirdly, a lot of them are in Papua New Guinea specifically, which has thousands and thousands of languages just in that one small country. Though, as with Proto-Indo-European and a few others, a few language families became very widespread due to a single language or multiple closely related languages becoming very widespread across the globe. Obviously, the large one is Indo-European because, as with European colonization, those language families are not only spoken in Eurasia, but also in the Americas. In Africa, there's generally a pretty major and easy-to-spot split between North and South Africa, with Northern Africa generally speaking Arabic as a lingua franca, which is a Semitic language, and then Southern languages in Africa generally being members of the Bantu family, due to an event called the Bantu Expansion, which was a conquering of most of Southern Africa by a tribe called the Bantus, which spread their language family across southern Africa. So languages such as Swahili and Zulu and Xhosa in southern Africa are all members of this family. Of course, there are hundreds of other languages within Africa, especially in the central region and in western Africa, but this is the largest divide within the continent. Madagascar actually is a huge exception to this, which brings me on to another group. Madagascar was colonized by Austronesian settlers, which originally came from Taiwan in China, though they're not related to people who would now be considered Chinese, and they spread their language family through Southeast Asia, through Indonesia, and then some of them, for some reason, sailed all the way down to Madagascar. So Malagasy, the national language of Madagascar, is actually an Austronesian language more closely related to Indonesian than it is to any language spoken in mainland Africa. Indonesian, of course, also considered to be the same language as Malay, spoken in Malaysia, is the lingua franca, or main kind of interactional language between strangers in Southeast Asia, bar kind of mainland Southeast Asia around Thailand and Cambodia. So this contributes to the Austronesian language family being very, very widespread among Southeast Asians. Then you have the Sino-Tibetan languages, which are split off into two major branches of Tibeto-Burman and Sinitic languages, if those words make no sense. 
basically these are the languages around China and northern Southeast Asia. So those two major branches are Sinitic, which is all of the languages or dialects that could be considered Chinese in the modern day, and Tibeto-Burman, which is modern Tibetan, and Burmese, which is spoken in Myanmar, as well as a few other languages such as Kham and Karen, which are again spoken around that region. Now, of course, China is a huge country and its languages, most famously Mandarin and Cantonese, are very, very widespread. So this contributes to the Sino-Tibetan language family being one of the major ones in the world. Sticking in mainland Asia and Eurasia, you have the Turkic language family, which is not just Turkish, but also Uzbek, Kazakh, and a few other languages in that region. All of those languages are also, to an extent, mutually intelligible, which means even though people speak different languages, they can still kind of understand each other and the point that they're getting across. So if you speak Spanish or French, you can probably understand most of what someone speaking the other language is saying, provided you're reasonably familiar with it. So the two final major language families in Asia are the Dravidian languages, which are Southern Indian, and that, that's the major divide in India between the Indo-European and the Dravidian languages, which are the major ones are Tamil, Kannada, and Sinhala, which is spoken in Sri Lanka. And then finally, in the kind of Polynesian islands of Far Eastern Asia, you have the Polynesian language family, which also includes Maori, spoken in New Zealand, as well as Hawaiian, spoken in, you guessed it, the United States. Finally, there are Native American language families, which are all very broad and fairly numerated, depending on the region of the Americas that you're looking at. But due to the very widespread spread of colonial Indo-European languages, for the most part, it's more convenient to talk about independent, widely spoken languages as it is language families, because many of these families have been broken up or broken apart due to the spread of English and Spanish and Portuguese. So the largest ones are the Inuktitut, Aylut family, spoken in very far northern Canada, the Cree language family, or diaspora of Cree dialects spoken throughout mainland Canada. There are a few major Native American languages spoken throughout the US, and then there are a few that extend out to Mexico and South America as well. Notable ones include Cherokee, Navajo, Nahuatl in Mexico, Quechua uh, in Peru, and Guarani, which is mostly spoken in Paraguay. Now, all of those languages I listed in the Americas come from different language families, and obviously there are a few much smaller ones and plenty of dead ones as a result of European colonialism. So, I guess, taking all of those into account, if you want a good, even spread of languages, pick from as many of those buckets as possible and don't focus too much on a specific one because it's easy to kind of assume that languages are too similar or too different if you just focus on a specific area of the world or a specific group of languages. Because even though some languages like take Hindi and French might be very different and be very geographically and culturally far apart, they're surprisingly similar in the scope of things and in the scope of all of the languages that exist on the planet, which is strange and very interesting to think about. 
at least I think. As far as actually acquiring a language is concerned, everyone knows the best way of course is to be bilingual for some reason to be brought up in a household that encourages you to speak two languages simultaneously and equally. So that might be that you have parents that speak two different languages, or a single parent that speaks multiple languages, or parents that speak a language separate from the common language of the country you're in, and that encourages a, a young-born child to process two different languages, however separate they may be, at the same time, and eventually learn to separate them. On a separate note, some people believe that child bilingualism, which is a, a very specific and deeply focused form of linguistic study that I'm no expert in by any means, causes stunted growth or development as a child. This is proven reasonably conclusively to be false because it just takes a child a bit longer to process language as a, a concept if there's twice as much input in twice as many different forms. So me, and I assume most of you, would have, as a very young child, heard a bunch of English input and eventually learnt to make the rules in your head and figure out how to output. Now, when you are processing two different languages, and especially two very, very different languages, say English and Arabic or Chinese, you will take a much longer time to separate those in your head and then go about piecing the rules of both of them together at the same time. Despite that, of course, many envy babies' abilities to put it all together in their head, and at least if I could learn languages as efficiently as babies can, I'd be miles ahead of where I am at the moment. Though, of course, bear in mind, from a baby's perspective, they get months or years of very consistent input before they even bother speaking a first word, and for most language learners, that's a very inefficient system. Now, as someone born into an English-speaking household in an English-speaking country, many would consider me lucky, I guess, to be proficient in the world's most widespread language. Um, though personally, I, I mourn the fact that I was not kind of culturally integrated into more than one language the way that many have been. So yeah, if you uh, were raised with more than one language from birth, let me know, share your experiences, and I'll discuss it in the future. Now, of course, it really shouldn't be any oversight that we live in an age where learning is really ridiculously possible. And a couple of years ago, I kind of decided on a whim, you know, you, you look up to, at least I do, look up to bilingual people as a, a native English monolingual speaker that kind of struggled with French at school. And you assume that bilingualism is some mystical power that these people are endowed with at birth. And in reality... It's just a case of, if you learn a language, you can speak it, I mean, obviously, but you don't realise how weirdly accessible it is to acquire an entire new culture and way of thinking into your life in this age of the internet and instant communication and books and all of that. You can go to a library and get a textbook or find a course online and just start learning a language. That was what I decided to do a couple of years ago. I started with Swedish, and through the process of learning Swedish and communicating with speakers of uh, Swedish and people in other Scandinavian countries, I met my girlfriend, who lives in Norway and is a Norwegian speaker, 
which prompted me to then switch to Norwegian, which wasn't a huge mistake to ratify, I guess, because they're very similar languages. And in fact, that kind of extra level of background learning helped me quite a lot because all of those languages in Northern Europe are arguably just one large dialect continuum, and there's very large amounts of variation between them. So plenty of people who speak Norwegian, or a language they would consider Norwegian, would find it much easier to interact with Swedish speakers than they would to interact with other people who also speak Norwegian, just a very different dialect on another side of the country. Regardless, that surprising accessibility of a completely different language is something that really got to me, and that fueled my personal interest in languages. It might not be something that kind of lights a spark in other people, but I'd say it should be something you at least consider, because the opportunity to learn something that you might have dismissed as completely impossible is weirdly possible in this day and age, I guess. So as I branched out into more languages than just Norwegian, obviously, then it became more of a, a question of personal choice of whether I want to focus more on just one language that meant a lot to me, or whether I'd like to kind of be rubbish at many languages. And that's something that's obviously personal to every person who is learning. Um, for me, I don't really intend to become fluent in more languages than like maybe one or two and everything else is more for a kind of rounded level of background information about how languages work. Because for me, of course, my, my primary interest and my primary focus is the building blocks of language and the linguistic variety and the history of all of the languages of the world. Some people can become a walking phrase book in, say, 10 languages and that has both its advantages and disadvantages, whereas some people can hold fully developed conversations in multiple languages, but in those senses it's very, very difficult to get past, say, maybe three. So, obviously I can't really gauge this level of importance to each individual person listening, but I'd say if there's a culture or a language of the world that really kind of pulls you in or you have a reason to be connected to, that's a better reason than any really to to get involved with it, whether that's learning the language or traveling there, I guess not really at the moment, but you know, involve yourself more than you think that you should normally be able to and you'd be surprised how easy it all is. Now tying this all back together, I guess in a neat little bow, the way I kind of organize this is, for example, I, I have a little a notebook with a calendar in that I carry with me everywhere. I have my calendar on my phone that kind of automatically schedules in Norwegian practice X many times a week, etc, etc. Uh, because for me, schedule is something that I, I really like to have in my life. I like to be able to go to sleep knowing what I'll be doing and when the next day. Obviously, that varies a lot for many different people, and you'll work efficiently at your own pace. So if you're someone that just likes to kind of do things on the hoof as you please, just have a list of things I recommend. Have a list of languages and have a list of things that you want to learn. And when inspiration strikes you, you'll know that now is the time to do that. I'm trying to be as non-specific as possible because obviously 
everyone will have a different thing in mind concerning that. But yeah, this is your wake-up call to do that thing that you've been considering doing. And, you know, make it a healthy and fun part of your life that you can talk to other people about and make a podcast about and have superficial knowledge about stuff that annoys your family at the meal table. Because, of course, I am a huge culprit of bringing basically most of this up when my family's eating dinner. And, you know, that's their gain, from from my opinion. Uh, and I, I don't say no to anyone else kind of unpromptedly teaching me anything either. That's how we get through life. That's how we learn new things that we wouldn't have come across elsewise. So I wish you a happy month of March. I wish you a happy month of unprompted random learning from people that you might otherwise not have come into contact with. So all the best. I look forward to speaking to you again uh, this full moon. And until next time, this has been Tom Talks. I'm Tom. Have a great day.